welcome to The Renewable Generation, a podcast about climate and energy issues by young people for all people. I am your host, Kelly Jang, and I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Chan. Steve, your background looks different today. Where are you? I see you got a lot of puzzles in your uh, closet. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to you this week from my childhood home that I grew up in. I'm in my old room, which is like bare bones right now. I have a bunch of soccer trophies in front of me from back when I was a, a goalkeeper. And I have some ceramics that I built when I was in high school. Um, got a little hand that I carved. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's 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 good to be back. Actually, I usually dread coming back home. There's like there's some like existential dread and angst that comes up, and I'm like kind of reverting back to who I was when I grew up, um, which always like fills me with some some weird you know feelings of I don't know. I want to get out of here, but for some reason this this year I feel super good being back home. Like I feel kind of more at peace with myself, and I feel like I've like kind of I don't know like come to a point in my life where I can like. T- take a pause and like kind of appreciate like the growth that I've that I've done so it's it's been good so far I'm hanging out hanging out with family been spending a lot of time with my pup um who I've missed really dearly so it's been been really nice I've been eating a lot of food so much food like you know when parents like force you to eat and they're just like you gotta keep eating it's like I'm so full it's like but uh no it's been great it's been it's been great um hopefully it's not too echoey here because there's like nothing in my room it's just a empty room. I think it's fine, but uh, just to call Steve out, he was unprepared for the podcast recording, did not bring his microphone with him. I will say every time that I have traveled in Reese during this season of the podcast, I did bring my microphone. So Steve, you gotta, you gotta step it up. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we're actually recording um, this episode today on Thanksgiving Eve. Um, I'm actually at my own place because I live 25 minutes away from my parents, but we're going over there tonight for pre, you know, pre-gaming Thanksgiving. Um, and then I'm going to my boyfriend's parents, uh, and sister's Thanksgiving thing tomorrow. And then another thing with my family on Friday. So it's just like, we're going to be eating well for many days in a row. Oh, then it's my birthday on Saturday. So obviously have to eat a lot of food for that. Wait, what? I didn't know that. So, it's your birthday coming up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's my birthday coming up. Although when once this um, episode is released, it will be after my birthday. So I'll, I'll be old. Well, happy birthday belated. Well, right now it's happy early birthday, but then, you know, our, our viewers. <laughs> when people hear it. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be so old. Just kidding. I'm, we're going to, we're going to have to change our tagline by, <laughs> by for middle-aged people, for all people, <laughs> but I'm, I hope I'm not middle-aged because so my feeling is that the definition of middle age is like, if you double your age, that's like a good human lifespan. I'm like, I do not want to die at age like 48. That's really young. So not quite middle-aged yet. I hope, but, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't. But in the middle ages, we would have been considered middle-aged. This is mm. true. This is very true. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so this is episode 10 of season three. It's also the season finale of season three. So we'd like to thank all the fans for listening, for, for being along with the journey with us. Um, we've, we've done a lot this season. 10 episodes up, 10 episodes down. We've covered things like Biden's Build Back Better plan. We've covered carbon accounting and offsets, lithium-ion batteries, i.e. own the libs. Um, we've interviewed a variety of experts from different fields, including entrepreneurship, public policy, agrivoltaics, and, and PhD research. We've covered WAP 
many times the water energy nexus. Um, and we've covered water energy, and power. Water and <laughs> water and power and energy inflation. And we we have had a blast this season, and we'd like to thank you for coming along with this journey with us. And we're happy to wrap up the season with this episode. Um, with this episode, we're going to be interviewing um, my friend Mara, who I randomly met um, one night at a bar with some of my friends, and our friend groups kind of mingled, and we met each other. So, Mara, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. So, quick intro. I'm going I'm I'm to allow Mara to do her own intro as well, but Mara is an a uh, master's student alumnus, I guess at this point, from Maastricht University, I'm probably mispronouncing that, in Amsterdam. Maastricht, but it's okay. Maastricht. <laughs> in, in Maastricht. <laughs> <laughs> in the Sustainability Science and Policy Program. She also works for um, some sustainability consultancies, working at clients called uh, Mindwater and Deep, um, part of programs known um, as D2Grids, and this is also in, in Amsterdam. And she was recently at COP26 um, in Glasgow um, talking about the work that she's doing. Um, so Mara, any, anything else you'd like to add to that? Um, yeah, so just a, yeah, a bit of background. I um, did my master's in uh, sustainability science and policy at uh, Maastricht University, uh, which is in Maastricht in the Netherlands. So it's, uh, it's not a well-known city, but it's all the way in the south of the Netherlands. Um, that's where I did my master's. Um, that's how I got to know uh, Mindwater during my master's doing a project for them. Uh, so I uh, started working there uh, about uh, yeah half a year, a bit over half a year after my uh, master's was wrapped up. Um, so I started there in February of 2020, um, working on this uh, D2 Grids project which is about fifth generation district heating and cooling. Um, very basically innovative uh, heating and cooling solution for the energy transition. Um, and I was working there uh, up until October. And in October, I um, yeah, started a small sustainability consultancy called uh, DEEP, um, just in the northern half of the Netherlands. And um, yeah, also still doing exciting work around the energy transition and um, and uh, circularity. Awesome, and and I think now we'll go into a little bit of your background because w one thing that I thought was interesting when we spoke before is that you have um, a liberal arts background, um, and which apparently is very common in Europe. You see a lot of people working in the climate space that aren't technical or, or engineers or finance or or lawyers per se, and I think that's that's kind of um, that's, that's inspiring for a lot of people um, our age in the United States that feel like they want to contribute, but they don't know how to. So um, why don't we start with a little bit of your background and, and just your personal background. Um, so you, you grew up actually in, in, in the United States, um, in the Bay Area, is that right? Yeah, so I grew up in the Bay, uh, grew up in Redwood City, and um, yeah, went to, yeah, went to high school in, in Mountain View. Um, ended up uh, moving up to Portland for my bachelor's. Uh, actually did two bachelor's uh, while I was there, so... One was in uh, environmental um, ethics and policy, and the other one was in uh, organizational communication. So, yeah, some brief flirtations with uh, with hard science, uh, especially during the um, during the bachelor's of uh, environmental ethics and policy. I did have some, you know, some hard science or natural science courses, whatever you want to call them. Um, so not a totally foreign field, uh, but yeah, I do have a, a liberal arts background. Um, 
and I ended up in Maastricht actually in um, yeah what I would call a really holistic master's program um, on sustainability science and policy that um, was also more yeah social science leaning I would say um, but that involved a cohort of people really from all around the world um, and from all different backgrounds. So, you know, there are people in the program with an engineering background um, or other people with more of a business and economics background. And then people like myself that, uh, yeah, a, a bit of a mix of, uh, of different uh, subjects. So that's how I ended up, uh, ended up in the Netherlands actually was via the master's program. Yeah, that's really cool. I think <clears throat> the term that we sometimes use to describe it is like very interdisciplinary. And I think <clears throat> I think that's like so important to solving the climate crisis. Like I think a lot of people think, oh, you need to be a scientist and invent this new technology. It's like, actually, no, what we need is, you know, communication, being able to communicate the problem and phrasing things in a way that make people want to take action. Um, so I think the organizational communication piece is particularly important, especially as we're talking about like, what do organizations and companies need to do? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, I think that's a space that a lot more people are stepping into now, into now. And I think there's a lot less, and I think you're also seeing this develop now in the kind of education that's available on this as well. But, um, I think for a long time, people thought that you really, had to be in this technical space or this financial space to really do something concrete or even, you know, directly in the political sphere to do something really concrete um, about the climate crisis. Uh, but I think we're seeing now that even people who aren't necessarily self-defined uh, activists in the field are finding their voice and, um, yeah, finding their area uh, where they can contribute something to addressing the climate crisis, because the reality is, is it affects everyone and everything that we're doing. So there's no field actually where this isn't relevant in uh, in some way or another. Yeah, definitely. Like I have a friend. I don't. I think she studied like commercial photography. In um, she has like an associate in that, and she did like food photography for many years and now she's working as a brand manager for like a food sustainability startup. So I was like, that's really cool that she, you know, found her niche in the climate space. Um, and so I'm, I mean, <clears throat> I know there's this podcast called my climate journey, which is kind of about like how, you know, different people from all different backgrounds find their place in the climate space. And I think that's something that like, you don't have to have studied environmental engineering. In fact, it's probably better if you didn't be, I mean, not necessarily better if you didn't, but if you have like some specific skills that you can apply in a certain way to solve the problem, I think that's really helpful. And I think for a long time I was like, wow, like why did I study environmental engineering? Should have studied like computer science or finance. Cause that's like a much more like readily applicable skill. <laughs> but I, I think that's, that's true. It's like, it's, it's like climate change affects every aspect of our society, right? It, it, no, no part will be, will be untouched. And so, like, we need people of all stripes and backgrounds. Like, we need, you know, communications folks and we need storytellers. Like, I think there's a huge, like, there's been a huge um, groundswell of, like, just science communicators and kind of, like, TikTok influencers and Instagram influencers. And, and that is, like, extremely important stuff and a skill that I have absolutely, like, 0% ability in that. Like, I'm not the kind of person that will tweet something, you know, and, like, or have some some like cool like Instagram reel that like explains things but you reach audiences of like millions of people in one like button 
And like, we really need to like mobilize an entire society, a global society of people. So like, I'm really, I'm really like excited to hear about like how those like art, artistic folks can really contribute to this, to this field and in ways that I can only support, you know, my, um, but not really be a part of. No, but I think there's really something for everyone also in between, even if you're not someone who's really uh, this public figure or someone who's really in that communication world either. There's so much room in between for people to, um, yeah, to create their voice in that space because you also need mediators in between all of these different groups. So you need people who are also, you know, know enough technically to run comfortably with the engineers, but who can also, yeah, translate that a bit for the, the communication people that maybe don't have that background and can't follow it the same way. So yeah, there's really space for, for everyone. Yeah. And Steve, I would, I would just point out the irony of you saying you have no communication skills while you're speaking on your own podcast. <laughs> Am I communicating right now? I thought I was, oh wow. I thought this was a spreadsheet. Oh, damn. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I, I would say this is, uh, you know, while we're not quite viral yet, I would say this does qualify as, you know, science education and communication, at least. Definitely. I, I like to think that it does. <laughs> so I actually, you know, speaking of about like master's programs and um, so I actually just have another friend who, who reached out to me recently and talked to me about, she's pivoting into climate space as well and she's doing like a master's program. Um, so like, I'm curious like what your thoughts are on like pursuing higher, higher education um, in pursuits of, of solving climate change and kind of these environmental, um, you know, uh, focuses. Like, did you think, do you think that it was like a, a pivotal part of your career? Like, would you recommend it to other people who are also trying to get into this space? Or would you, you know, looking back, would, would you have recommended something else? Yeah, I think it depends. Um, I think in the U.S. it's obviously tricky because in the U.S. people have a lot on degrees, you know, it's, uh, it, it says something, especially if you're looking for a job, um, it says something about a certain level of knowledge. That's maybe not always necessarily true in the practice. You know, I'm sure there are, you know, there are young activists who are like 16 and 17 that, that probably have more practical knowledge than I ever will about addressing the climate crisis because they've been on the forefront speaking on these issues, uh, already from, yeah, the start of when they were a teenager, you know? So um, I think it's, it's, it's hard to quantify it in that sense. I don't think knowledge-wise that you're going to get everything, you know, out of a master's program. That's definitely not. I've, I learned a lot during my master's, but I've learned infinitely more, definitely just being in the fields and, and doing things and learning from other people. Um, but yeah, it depends what kind of space you want to move into. For me, I knew personally... Um, I was really interested in things that were going on in Europe. So for me, a master's, doing a master's here uh, was an important stepping stone to actually also being able to live and work here. So it, it really depends on uh, the kind of trajectory you're looking for, you know. Yeah. So Mara, did you um, work at all between your undergrad and your master's? No, I went, uh, I went straight for it. Uh, that wasn't necessarily the, the plan. It was a bit uh, <laughs> of a last minute decision. Uh, I have to admit, but um, no, I, I went pretty much straight from my bachelor's to the master's program. Yeah, <clears throat> that's, I mean, the question of like whether to get a master's, it's like something I think about from time to time. But I think at least for me at this point in my career, I'm like, I'm at a place where I'm like at least reasonably happy with my job. And I think I can learn at least 
enough just by, you know, like continuing to do professional development. Um, but then sometimes I'm like, wow, I do miss, you know, like when your only focus is just like, you know, engaging intellectually with the material and you're not focused on like, oh, d- does me thinking about this really interesting topic actually help my company's bottom line? Um, but I think, you know, doing the podcast and like studying up on all the different topics that we um, do episodes about has kind of like scratched, it does kind of help scratch that itch, at least for me. Yeah. And I, 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 I can totally um, relate to that, Kelly. I think about grad school a lot too. It's, it's so fun to be like an intellectually, like um, just just intellectually honest and like curious and exploring things. Like it's so fun to be a full-time learner. Um, but it's also like so expensive, especially in the United States. It's like you go into, you saddle yourself with an additional, like what, 20 to 40 grand. If, if that, you know, maybe more per year. Right. Um, is that, and I think we talked a little bit about that as well. Right. Mara, like was some, some of the, the, the colleges in, in Europe are a lot more affordable? Oh, definitely. Even um, if you're coming from outside of the EU, if you're not an EU citizen, it's um, a lot of programs, at least in the Netherlands, uh, which is where I'm based, um, a lot of programs are one year. And yeah, the tuition is usually maximum uh, 20000 And in my case, I had the enormous privilege to have a, a, a full scholarship on top of that. So, you know, this was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. It would be, it would have been dumb <laughs> to to skip on this uh, amazing opportunity. Um, but yeah, definitely, cost of education in different parts of the world is um, yeah, different compared to the U.S. I would say, excepting the uh, excepting the U.K., uh, where education costs are also pretty high for um, for masters and uh, and postdoctorate. Um, But I think it also, yeah, coming back to what you want to get out of it, for me, I mean, I had this amazing opportunity to to come study here uh, with scholarship, but it was also, even before I knew I got that scholarship, I already knew I wanted to come because I also knew, yeah, in wanting to come here and potentially work here, I also knew that this this program would give me a perspective that I couldn't get in the U.S. just because this program was so much more international than a lot of uh, higher education programs in the U.S. I mean, I really, there were people from all over the world in my program, not just uh, different countries in Europe. So it was really important to be able to learn as much as I did from my peers, um, as well as the program itself. Yeah. Um, What made you specifically want to study in Europe? You've mentioned that a few times, but I mean, you know, a lot of people are interested in going to Europe, but I'm just curious to hear, you know, your take on what specifically drew you to it. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it was, yeah, definitely looking at uh, higher education in the U.S. and seeing for someone with my background, um, seeing some limitations on what I could study um, because I wasn't feeling super comfortable with a lot of the programs that were attached to an MPA to an MBA or other programs that were really um, natural science focused. I felt like I couldn't find a program that was a really good fit for where I felt my strengths were. Um, so that led me to trying to find more yeah, holistic programs. And there are some uh, in the US, for example, um, I think with the, the new school in, uh, in New York, they have a lot more innovative programs, but it's also ridiculously expensive. Um, so that led me to looking broader and um, 
yeah, I ended up looking at schools in Europe partly through the, the Fulbright uh, scholarship program. Um, so that's jump-started the, the Europe process a little bit. But um, yeah, then I found that there were a lot more holistic programs available that were open to people with different um, study backgrounds. So it seemed like a logical next step for me in that respect. Cool. That's really cool. The Renewable Generation is brought to you by Bright Power, the premier provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators. We enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside and out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, speaking of transitioning your career into the clean energy space, we're hiring. Um, check out our job openings at brightpower.com slash weird-hiring or go to brightpower.com and click on the careers tab. And feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions about working at Bright Power. Potentially, I can refer you because we do get referral bonuses. <laughs> so. Well, reach out to Kelly if you want a job and get, get, in the, get your foot in the door and get that bonus to Kelly, too. Um, so, Mara, um, after grad school, you, you graduated and you found a job. Um, tell us a little bit about... Um, First, you were working with Mindwater, right? Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so Mindwater is um, an energy company based um, close to where I was studying. So I was studying in Maastricht in the southern part of the Netherlands, and they're based in a city called Heerlen, uh, which is um, about half hour away from, uh, from Maastricht. And I got to know them during my uh, master's study, uh, during a project, and I was really intrigued with what they were doing because uh, one, partly um, district heating and cooling, so district energy systems are not that common in the U.S. Actually, you rarely see them. I think there's some district energy systems on the East Coast and, and a couple other places, but they really are not that common. Um, so for me, that was something that was also really new. Um, but they're also... Uh, really innovative, and that's what uh, I found really interesting when I first got to know them. Um, that region is a former coal mining region, and they basically took that story of the, the coal mining, um, and it's also made it economically very difficult in that region because it was a former very rich coal mining region, and then they stopped uh, with coal production, and then you had this huge gap of, yeah, what comes next? Um, so mine water uh, translates uh, in, in the sense, literally, it's uh, in Dutch, you can translate it to my water, but they literally mean mine water in the sense that um, they use the water from the flooded coal mine shafts. And that's the water that they're using in their, their district energy system um, in Heerlen. And they're using the old uh, coal mines basically as a, as a seasonal buffer for, for heating and cooling. So it's, it's a kind of geothermal, but they're using it based on existing infrastructure. So I thought that was incredibly cool when I first heard about it. Um, I really hadn't heard anything like it um, before I met them. And so I got in touch with them after I graduated and 
it took a little while, but I eventually ended up um, working with them as the uh, thematic coordinator for the D2 Grids project. Uh, so the D2 Grids project is an EU-funded uh, subsidy project through the uh, Interreg um, subsidy program uh, for Northwest Europe. And yeah, they needed someone to coordinate basically all of the um, content work, but also the connecting the content with the different pilot investments uh, that were being made on this innovative uh, fifth generation district heating and cooling uh, concept. Um, for our listeners who might not be as familiar with the term, could you explain kind of what uh, district heating and cooling is and kind of, you know, what's fifth generation heating and cooling versus the other four generations? So correct me if I'm wrong. So my understanding is that district heating is basically like right now in at least the most common thing in the U.S. and generally in the world is that like each house will have their own, you know, like heater and AC unit. Whereas with district heating, you'll have like pipes, you know, running around the whole city or district. And then you pump heat or cool from that source. And so I think this is particularly common in Scandinavia where, um, like in Denmark, they'll have like, oh, the waste heat from, you know, their whatever power plant is pumped around and then they extract heat from that. And then my understanding is that fifth generation is you actually, the heat source is like very low temperature. So then um, you're, you don't actually, like, I think the issue with district heating in many places, like you actually do have to have this power plant that's producing a lot of heat so that you can have this hot water. But then with the fifth generation, that's not um, necessary because you have like, you know, room temperature water floating around and then you have like heat pumps to pump heat in or out of the water, depending on the season. Um, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I will also give a full disclaimer that I am again, not a technical person and have been working with this project, but fifth generation is actually still something in development as a, con as a, as a concept. So setting a hard and fast definition on it is, uh, is tricky and also assigning all of the technical specificity specificities is still something that is being worked on. Um, so we have our, our definition coming out of what we've done in the project so far, but I will, yeah, full disclaimer that that's still in development. So things, uh, things are changing, but indeed it is about really not only making use of that um, really low temperature, but what we um, do is also really actually about that circular aspect, about the, the reuse. Um, so not only taking waste heat, for example, from some large, uh, large power plant or, or a factory, um, but even something as simple as waste heat coming out of a supermarket, that's something that can be used by a fifth generation system, even though that's not super high temperature, that the idea is that that gets cycled back into the system and that you focus on that exchange and reuse at a really small scale first before you even um, you know, need to pull from your buffers or use an additional source basically to, to boost the temperatures in the system. It sounds like if I can summarize a little bit of that, it's kind of like using some, some aspect of like efficiencies there too. It's like not letting the waste heat just go into the ground or into the air or the cooling just go into the ground into the air but like kind of making that circular aspect is to to utilize um what's already what's already being produced or already being cooled in the first place and i think it's what's 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 interesting is like um we talked about 
um, a couple of weeks back is that the EU actually heating and cooling in, in the buildings and industry accounts for half of the energy consumption um, of system-wide ahead of both transportation and electricity. So it sounds like heating and cooling in, in the EU is a lot bigger of a problem than it is in the U.S. So it sounds like the work that you're doing is, it can be you know, potentially a lot more impactful in, in the EU. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, to be honest, I think it's um, with changing climate, it's, it's, yeah, that's the current status for the EU, um, that it's, yeah, we have really high heating and cooling uh, energy usage. Um, but, you know, it's also relevant for other countries and sometimes it's more seasonal depending on, on the climate. But with the climate crisis, it's becoming even more relevant because we're seeing more of these temperature extremes. So heating and cooling is also coming steadily more into play in other places that maybe until now had some slight seasonal bumps um, and maybe not as much demand for, for uh, heating and cooling um, more consistently year-round. But um, yeah, it's definitely a huge topic uh, within, the, within the EU. Yeah. So for um, the project you were working on, so... I think one of the problems that I've heard of with district heating is like if your heat source is like really far from, you know, the heat demand, then the heat losses, particularly if you're using a low temperature source over a long distance, you know, doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, I think <clears throat> in particular, like there, there was some hullabaloo or hype around using potentially like waste heat from data centers for district heating, but then um, the data centers in many cases aren't located close enough to, um, you know, demand centers. So... Um, if the, I guess, heat source that you're using is like located within old mine shafts, are there enough, you know, load centers located close to that to be able to utilize the heat? Yeah. So that's definitely, um, maybe to explain a bit. So the, the mine shafts, what they tried to do with that kind of concept, um, in Heerlen. And I would also say that they also f admit to the fact that it's not fully maybe what we would define as 5G DHC, but it's on its way there. The, the system in Heerlen was kind of the early phases of the, uh, of the concept. It's been running since, um, I think, 2010 or 2011. So it's, it's been going through multiple stages of development. Um, but what, we, what they have in uh, Heerlen is that the mines, basically, that serves as kind of the backbone of the system. So that's realistically meant to serve as, as a buffer over... Yeah, a longer time frame. So ideally, what you're doing is you're not boosting the temperature in the system everywhere. And this holds true for, for 5G DHC. Um, so you're not boosting the temperature in the entire system everywhere. Um, and that also leads to less losses on the grid overall. Um, so that's also how you deal with, you know, long transportation. Um, but also one of the focuses for 5G DHC is really that local. So those coal mines are in that region. It's not that far. Um, they're in the area of Yerlin. Um, so the distances aren't that great, but that holds true for um, other 5G DHC developments within the D2 Grids project that it's really focused on um, local sources. Um, so, you know, not, not pulling something that's, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away, if that can be avoided, but really prioritizing what do you have readily available um, 
that can be used on a, on a short-term basis, essentially. And then you can maybe expand that ring of where you're looking at sources for something that can help buffer on um, a seasonal or a yearly basis to keep the temperatures within the system in balance. But um, mm -hmm. for that day-to-day, -day, you're really looking at uh, as local as possible. Yeah, that's really cool. It kind of um, reminds me of the, you know, small is beautiful um, by Schumacher, it's kind of that whole idea. It's like you should utilize your local resources to the best of your ability. And I think, you know, as we decarbonize, it's, it'll be interesting to see, you know, there's on, on the one hand, we do want to, you know, improve national transmission lines or like international transmission lines even to be able to access renewables from farther away. But it's also about like, you know, doing load management and using localized energy storage and potentially even like, you know, heat storage and stuff like that to be able to better utilize the local resources. Yeah, I think what's really important about the 5G DHC concept and what Mindwater and the other uh, organizations within the D2Grids project are trying to do is um, honestly really looking uh, first and foremost at that reuse and that efficiency step. Uh, I'm speaking in Dutch now. That uh, <laughs> reuse and efficiency piece uh, first that you know, we're coming against questions everywhere of how are we going to have enough sources to meet our current energy demands um, at the temperatures that we need, at the times that we need. How the hell are we going to do this? That is the big question. And that was a lot of the circulation around COP26 as well, for sure. Um, just the question of we want to do this energy transition, but how, how the hell are we going to do this? And I think what's important about 5G DHC and what we're looking at in D2 grids is saying, well, first, how do we take that energy demand that we're seeing now and how do we reduce that by changing the scale of the sources that we're looking at, by making smart connections um, within a neighborhood to yeah, essentially close the loop of energy uh, make that circular as much as possible and ensure that there's efficient reuse and exchange. Um, we don't let anything go to waste. Uh, we match the temperature grades that are needed and nothing above that. I think that's a big difference from older generations of district heating systems that are really centralized as well. So with like one centralized plant is, you know, you would have this coal-fired or gas-fired plant that's basically running near boiling water through the pipes at all hours of the day. So it's always being delivered at always at a super high temperature. So it's basically ready to go when it comes out of your pipes for um, you know, hot water and, and your shower and heating up your house. So it's always at a high temperature. And part of 5G is saying, your energy demand doesn't need to be that high because you can achieve the same results you need by running low temperature and incorporating waste heats um, and only boosting the temperatures at the time and the, and the place that it's needed. So it's first and foremost, I would say, a paradigm shift rather than really changing the technologies. We're using a lot of the existing technologies. We're not developing a lot of new things, um, maybe around the area of, of smart control of the system. But in terms of the actual practical technologies in place, the pumps that are in place, those are nothing new. It's just the way you set them up and the way you set that system up to work is um, through a different lens. So um, that's really interesting. So I think so. You mentioned I think that you were you were presenting a lot of this, uh, a lot of these findings at Glasgow. Um, 
so I guess pivoting kind of to the conversation there. So like at COP26, what was, I mean, just broadly speaking, what was the experience like? Um, I know you were presenting about your work, but also just like being there physically in, in the flesh, you know, there were probably so many people I would imagine. And just like, I, I can imagine the, the energy just being buzzing with, with excitement and kind of passion, but also being logistically overwhelming, just being like, oh, how many lines do I have to wait? And how many times do I have to, you know, check in and get my badge flashed? I don't know. But yeah, what, what was it all like for you? Yeah. So I have to say, um, I was only there realistically for two and a half days. So it was super quick. And a big part of that was just really focused on my work, my job. So not only um, we did have a public um, event, it was called On the Road to 5G DHC. And that's where we got to present on our projects. And yeah, what the implications are basically, uh, what we've done until now, but what the implications are, if we're looking at COP26 and the EU strategy on heating and cooling and what 5GHC can mean for the future of the energy transition. Um, so that was on the, uh, on the first day. Uh, but I, as I already told you via, uh, via email, I actually got super sick on, uh, on my first day there. Um, so my interaction with the other parts of COP26 were, yeah, very limited to, to non-existence, uh, unfortunately. So we were, you know, one of the many side events that were really over the course of two weeks, hundreds of side events, both online and in, in person in Glasgow. Um, so we were more centrally located in Glasgow, but yeah, I think it was obviously really exciting to still be in Glasgow and you see all of these people walking around with the, you know, official delegate badges. And you know that these are people that are going to these really important conversations that's, um, you know, is closed off in, in the blue zone. So not, not everyone has access to that, but um, it definitely does give a certain energy and it, it made it feel like our work was that much more important that we could contribute something on that, that, um, conversation because I think I ended up following a lot of things anyways a bit online just because I was coughing and just generally feeling gross um, which was a major bummer but um, yeah I think you see from a lot of people that and it also from myself personally there's there's only so much you can achieve from some really formal climate congress um, and at the end you get a really nicely written uh, climate accord um, that indicates a lot of commitment. But I have to say, seeing our events and a lot of other connected events, um, also went to like a, a Green Solutions Award. So um, seeing a lot more of those side events, I think was more impactful uh, to some degree because those are the people that are really working on the ground uh, to try and do something um, about the climate crisis. And I think uh, it's sometimes hard to make that connection between all of the nice things that are being said in a, and written down in a climate accord versus what's really happening on the ground. Um, so I think it was really nice actually being able to see all of the people involved in those side events and that are involved in these smaller projects that maybe don't get as much, you know, larger attention, um, but are still really impactful um, and are really doing something. Uh, to try and uh, address the climate crisis. 
Yeah, totally. You know, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced, like the more I spend time studying the space that like all these, you know, giant events and these like centralized, you know, political leaders from all over the world come and gather. It's just about virtue signaling and, and trying to show that, you know, we care, we, we are making these commitments and, you know, our hearts in the right place. But, you know, time and time again, we see these events happen and, and emissions keep ticking upwards. And it's like there's, there's no real impact from having met. I think I, I agree with what you're saying about the, the real action is in those side events. And, and I think I'm increasingly convinced as well that the climate solutions are going to come from the ground up. I think it's going to come from, you know, young people like us, like on this call and, and our listeners at home who care about these things and are working on solutions like on their day to day. Like, you know, just, just plugging away at your job, um, you know, maybe like advocating on a local level as well, like cities and towns and maybe state level. Um, I think that's really where the action happens, like as you said, and like the, 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 the decentralized kind of like mobilizing hundreds of millions or billions of people to just, you know, chip in continuously day over day is where I personally put my optimism um, much, much more so than like in, in like the giant bureaucratic level I, I, the only thing I would look to, towards for like the giant bureaucracy level is like, give us funding and get rid of red tape. Um, I would say, you know, just, just get like help push in the right direction and get out of our way and let like the people do the work. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's, um, I definitely totally agree because I think that's really the, the biggest role that governments and other large international parties, large funding bodies, you know, and even large multinationals, that's a huge role that they can play is ensuring that there's, there's funding there and that the policy and legal spe space doesn't inhibit um, the important work that needs to be done. And I mean, that's part, you know, that's how our project got to be there at COP26. That was through, you know, EU interreg funding. That's the only reason this project is possible because right. we got the space to do innovative uh, work in the heating and cooling space. So super important that these are happening and that those commitments come. But in terms of where you're looking for really concrete action that's happening now, it also pays to look at, at the smaller scale as well and what's happening in some of those smaller projects and initiatives. Right. Oh, and I should also add, you should probably stop subsidizing fossil fuel companies around the world because that's, yeah, that's another a huge one. one. We got to pull that rug <laughs> out. We got to stop doing that. So, uh, yeah, that was also, I think, really hard to watch. Um, and I do also in my personal space, you know, follow a lot of activists that are working on these. And yeah, it's a huge thing in the UK. The UK is hosting COP26 and um, they want to invest in the Cambo oil fields. And this is happening at the same time. And so that's, watching that unfold is just insane to me. So yeah, there really needs to, alongside these commitments that are really important in terms of funding, I think also, especially for um, developing nations, it's also a lot of redistribution of funding um, to the places that really need it. Um, there's money available, it's just, not sitting in the right hands, in my opinion, um, to make this happen. Um, but it's about the redistribution of, of that funding, but uh, yeah, definitely pulling out of the activities that we have known for 50 plus years are incredibly damaging to our planet, so. Cool, so 
think we're now at the point in our show where we're going to introduce our surprise section. Um, our, our listeners already know what this is, but I'm hoping, Mara, that you don't. Um, this is called... You're, ho- you're, you're hoping that she doesn't listen to her podcast? So that this Ooh. isn't a surprise, you know? And we have <laughs> one additional fan, hopefully. Um, this is known as the peak demand round. So these are fast-paced questions with fast-paced answers, okay? So don't think about it too much. We're going to ask you a question. You're going to have an answer immediately. Um, and how it's going to go is like we're going to alternate. So I'll ask the first one. Kelly asks the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Um, you ready? Yeah, hopefully. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing too crazy, okay? So um, question one. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Um, a cat because they get to sleep and eat all the time and that. Honestly, sometimes sounds really great. You, you know, I did see a cat the other day skiing. It was like on this, like on, it was standing on this woman's backpack. And I think the cat was just afraid to walk on the ground because there were like two dogs there too. Um, and then when she was skiing down, she had the cat in the backpack. So you hope you, so I'm, you're, if you're a cat, you're probably hoping that you, they, those were not your owners because they would make you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the, the lazy cat vibe. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds good sometimes. Um, cool. Next question. Um, if you could talk to a version of yourself that's 10 years younger, what piece of advice would you give to yourself? Oh, these questions are so hard. Um, I think if I say something just real quick. It would be, uh, don't be afraid to take up space and be curious about where your own ideas and your voice can lead you. That's awesome. Okay, um, question three. Something that you used to believe and no longer do. Um, I used to believe that nuclear energy was really terrible. This is also a hot topic, but I've learned a lot more, and I think my opinions on that have become a lot more nuanced over the last couple of years in terms of what that can mean for the energy transition. Cool. If you had a crystal ball to tell you any one thing about climate, what would it be? Ooh, I feel like I don't want to know. I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, I think the ultimate one is obviously, yeah, can we really pull this off of keeping to one and a half degrees? And I think that's the, that's the big question. Um, I'm not sure if I actually want to know the answer, though. That's a great point, actually. Yeah, if you, if you knew the answer and the answer was bad, you'd just be like, well, in that case, maybe you'd just be like, all right, I'm going to live whatever life I want to live now. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I, I also wouldn't want to know. Um, okay, if you had a magic wand and could make any one policy solution happen to solve climate change, what would it be? Uh, wealth redistrib- redistribution. I think that is really essential for getting ready, we need to be on climate and social goals. What's one trait that you admire in others? Oh, this is also, I admire so many things in other people. Um, I think at the end of the day, people who are genuinely really good listeners and I think can really take in the ideas of other people and make something of that and yeah. I think that's an incredibly difficult skill that I'm still learning a lot about. Cool. What is one climate tech or solution or policy or idea that excites you the most? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep plugging my own project here. But um, <laughs> I think fifth generation district heating and cooling is something that if it can get scaled up and the concept gets concretized, that 
can be really a, a game changer, not just in Europe, but in a lot of other spaces that are looking for more flexible um, and adaptive solutions for the energy transition. And last question, success means blank. Success to me means being happy with myself and the positive impact I've made in the world. All right. Thank you. That's, that was our peak demand round. You did, you did great. Pass with flying colors. Um, Kelly and I will give, we'll confer on the back and give you your score afterwards. There's just no kidding. score. Um, there's no score. The points don't matter. Um, and just like, um, just like the score that doesn't exist, we'll talk about something else that doesn't exist in the United States yet. It's the Green New Spiel. Um, so this is a section of the show where we talk about one final tidbit of, of information or, or fun fact that we learned about or just something else we want to tell our audience about. Um, Kelly, do you um, have a Green New Spiel for us this week? Um, yeah, so I have um, so one recommendation of a series of articles. Um, you know, over here we're big fans of the Volt newsletter by David Roberts. He recently has been doing the series on 24-7 um, clean energy. And so we had done like an episode kind of where we touched on that, but he dives into like very extreme detail. And then in there, there's also some links to some white papers, which I have opened and not read on my, so, you know, it's like one of the many tabs that I have open, um, but it's definitely a really um, interesting series and I highly encourage you all to check it out. Um, and then <clears throat> one interesting thing that I saw was that the Washington State Attorney General just recently settled $2.5 million with Amazon because they were selling like really potent insecticides on their platform. Um, basically, these like if you're selling them in a store, you like have to get a permit to do it. And then they're just like unlicensed sellers just selling like crazy insecticides on Amazon. Um, and so, you know, people were like, $2.5 million is such a drop in the bucket. Um, I think it was kind of like, if you do this again, probably the fines will be greater. They're like, why don't you like, you know, levy fines on the individual people that were selling it? Um, and so it's just like interesting to see how, you know, with like online retailers in a lot of these cases, you can sell like things that might be really harmful to the environment without having as much oversight because it's so much more diffuse and distributed. And it's very interesting to me that it's the Gen attorney general of Washington state that's actually able to pursue these cases because Amazon is headquartered in Washington. So pretty interesting. Um, and also, if you don't know this guy, um, the attorney general of Washington, Bob Ferguson, sued Trump like 40 or 50 times and won every single time. So he was he got kind of famous as a result of that. Um, People were like, oh, is he going to run for governor? He did not run for governor. So, I don't know. Maybe when Jay Inslee retires. But he's, he's very good at his job, so maybe he should stay there. Yeah. We like Jay. He's, he's yeah. a cool guy. Yeah. Um, cool. Thanks, Kelly. And um, for my Green New Spiel, I'll talk about what I did last week. Um, so, I actually went um, on a date to this place in San Francisco called Manny's Cafe. Um, so Manny's Cafe is a place that I just learned about recently. Um, it's really cool. It's like a, it's like a coffee shop slash, um, you know, bar and like food and stuff, but they also, have, it's also like a community center and they have this room in the back. That's like a huge room. It's kind of like a small stage and Manny, the owner of the bar invites people over and has them talk about the work that they're, that they're doing. Either that's like political or, you know, um, you know, some kind of advocacy or some kind of cool solutions that they're working on. And this past week, they had um, the deputy director of California's Natural Resources Board um, over. 
and she is overseeing um, 21,000 employees that protect and manage California's natural resources. And they recently just created a $1.5 billion budget to address wildfires in California. So she explained to us um, what that $1.5 billion is going to. It was a really cool event. I was kind of nervous going into it because I was like, I always leave these events feeling like depressed and like anxious about things, um, which I did, don't get me wrong. But I also, but I also feel a little bit optimistic because they, they have a plan at least. Um, so I wanted to share what that plan was. Um, first of all, some context. Um, California wildfires, as we all know, is, has run rampant and has been destroying um, our, our ecosystem. Um, this past year, uh, last, past couple of years, we've seen um, flames up to 150 feet tall, which is like a 15-story building, um, and at the low end, like 15 feet, which is like a one- or two-story building. That's, that's the low end of wildfires, it's 15 feet. So pretty crazy. Um, the Dixie Fire, um, which is still burning, I believe, um, is the first fire in history to ever climb the Sierra Nevada mountains, and that's like granite. Um, so it's like we're, the wildfires are getting more intense, and they're being able to expand to areas that were never um, seen before. So definitely um, cause for concern here. Um, another piece of context. In 2018, the car fire created what's called a fire tornado. Um, and this is a real thing. It's not some, like, Hollywood thing. but um, Fire-nado. Fire-nado. <laughs> it's, it's where a fire's own convective column of rising heat becomes hot enough and big enough to redirect wind and weather in ways that can make the fire burn much hotter and with a little warming, um, spread fast and circulate and literally just you know, create a fire tornado. Um, and it, it's, it's so fast that some people are trying to flee the fire and they can't run away fast enough. Um, the scientific um, term for the cloud that rises from these fires is called the pyrocumulonimbus cloud. Pyrocumulonimbus? Cumulonimbus cloud. Um, which is the same thing that also um, erupts um, during volcanoes. Um, when, when volcanoes erupt and they throw all that ash into the air, essentially causing a cooling effect. Um, and it's also the same thing that, that um, came from Dresden, Germany, bombings in World War II, um, as well as Hiroshima, um, Japan, the nuclear bomb attack. Um, there, was, there was such hot f- um, flames and so much um, ash was thrown into the air that it created a nuclear winter. Um, and we're seeing that same thing with California wildfires now. So um, I just, I think like it's really, I got chills when I heard about this stuff and just like putting it into context, like climate change is like a bomb hitting us and we should be treating it with the same amount of severity. Um, so so on to California's uh, mitigation steps. There, there are three steps that they're doing. Um, they're thinning forests. Um, they're creating fuel breaks where there's like um, a bunch of redwoods and then they're going to create like a clearing of space. So they're going to actually clear trees out. So that's where the fire, fire, firefighters are going to take their, like, make their stand and then have, like, a, more, more forests and then more clearings. So they're kind of creating these, like, sectional sections of breaks, kind of like trench warfare, actually, if you think about it. Um, and then the third step is fire hardening of, of houses and creating more inspections and regulations. So have, they have these things called these, these sprays that are fire retardant that will, you know, help prevent fire, um, houses from burning. And they also are going to be instigating measures to like clear gutters. Like, like um, a lot of people have like dead leaves that have stayed in their gutters for years and years. And that's actually one of the easiest things that we can do to reduce our fire, fire risk. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it was um, the entire event was like extremely sobering. But is, is at the same time, like kind of um, I feel a little bit better knowing that there's a plan. And like the deputy director who was telling us about it, everything, she, her experience is in Afghanistan. Like she, she her, her experience is literally wartime experience, like doing strategy. So um, it's, it's cool that we're taking, that California is taking such a, 
such an appropriate response to these things and taking it with the appropriate severity, I think. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, although uh, given our spectacular success in Afghanistan, that does not give me particular confidence <laughs> um, in our, you know, it's like that that's exactly the leadership we need to fight the climate crisis. I mean, the same level of funding for sure. <laughs> We'll happily take over that military budget. Oh yes, that that would that would help. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, great. And then one last thing that I would actually like to close this episode with, in the spirit of the season, is what is one thing that you're thankful for? So, uh, Mara, I hope you're thankful for some things. I know you didn't have a green news feel, but <laughs> and even though you're in you're in um, the you know, you don't have a Thanksgiving over there in the Netherlands. Um, hopefully you can still celebrate with us. So why don't you start us off? Um, well, I did actually manage to have, um, yeah, a small Friendsgiving celebration. I do have uh, a couple friends here that are actually also from California, coincidentally, also from the Bay. So uh, small worlds in, uh, in the sunny country in Europe. Um, no, I'm super thankful. Uh, I think the really basic ones, uh, family and friends, but I think definitely given the last couple of years and living really far away from a lot of people that I care about, definitely very thankful for having great friends and family to support me. Um, yeah, I guess I'll go next. So one thing I'm really thankful for is just a sense of community. I think particularly in COVID, it was like very you know, isolating. And I think now that we're getting back into even just doing like group activities, like um, we do this trail running group on Tuesday evenings where we like all run together in the dark and like disgusting mud and pouring rain and then go and like hang out and eat pizza at a brewery after. And that's something I'm like, wow, I just really missed hanging out with like large groups of people. So that's been really fun. Um, I'm also thankful that um, we restarted this podcast because it's been really fun for us to talk to cool people like you, Mara, um, and also get to hang out with Steve every week because I think when we weren't doing the podcast, we didn't talk as much. I was like, oh, I wonder what Steve's up to. I haven't talked to him in a while. And now I'm like, oh, I'm ready for the season to be over so I don't have to talk to you anymore. Just kidding. <laughs> um, and I'm think, yeah, I think... And that's been really, you know, it's been really great. And I'm also definitely thankful to be close to family um, and just to have that be something that's like so easily accessible for me. And I'm thankful that there's so many people out there trying to um, solve the climate crisis because we need all hands on deck. That was not one thing. That was like five things. <laughs> awesome. I know. <laughs> So I'm grateful for 25 things. It's number one. Um, just kidding. So I would say that I'm really grateful for um, therapy and mental health awareness and just kind of mindfulness. So I recently um, started doing therapy again. Um, it's been a couple of years since I did it. Um, and I, I, I'll admit to the fans, you know, I, I, I'm a very optimistic person, but I also have like kind of depressive tendencies sometimes. And I think it's, it's I'm really grateful just to, be able to talk with like a professional about this. And I, I would encourage anyone who has mental health issues to like feel encouraged and feel empowered to, to seek, to take your mental health into your own hands. Like it's, it's just as an important part of wellness as physical health is. And we, we treat physical health with no stigma at all, but there's so much stigma for mental health. And I think that's a, a damn shame. 
Um, I think it's, I've been thankful for the therapy and also just like mindfulness, like meditating more. I've been, been journaling more. Um, and I feel I've been taking a lot of benefits from that. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Um, and just being back at home is, is, is nice, um, for, for a change. Like it's, it's usually not, um, but it's been nice. So I'm, I'm very thankful for the way that, you know, life is going right now. Um, and with that, I'm also would like to say that I'm thankful for our listeners, um, all of all of y'all. I think we're we're around 200 a week, more or less. Um, so, and we we have international audience. We have people from like Australia listening, like you Australians. Like, hey, thank you. Um, we we really appreciate you guys listening to us, and you know you know keeping this thing going. This is this is our last episode of the season, and we're gonna be off for a while here. So we won't be you won't be hearing from us. You won't be hearing my dumb jokes or, or Kelly's uh, uh, ped, ped, pedantry, I would say. <laughs> but uh, we'll miss you. Um, so, so thank you guys all for listening. Mara, thank you for coming on to the show and speaking with us. And um, yeah, anything else, Kelly that, or Mara, that you want to say to the, to the fans? I just want to say thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be interviewed for a podcast. Uh, I think that was a subconscious life goal that I didn't know I had, but I feel so honored. You made it. I made it. Um, and I think just, yeah, for those who are listening, who are uh, thinking about how they get into the climate space, I'd just say there's so much room in this space um, to, yeah, bring your own voice and, and your talents and, yeah, just try and fit that where you can because, yeah, as Kelly said, we need all hands on deck and the opportunities are endless and this is something that we're going to be working on for a while. So uh, don't be afraid to, to jump in where it, uh, where it suits. But take care of yourself, like, uh, like Steve was saying. Mental health is important in this space too. Yeah, definitely. Avoid the climate despair. It's tough, but uh, you got to take care of yourself. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Mar, for joining us today. This was a great way to wrap up our season three. Um, we'll be off for the holidays and potentially a bit after that as well. Um, if you are a potential sponsor, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, season four will be better. We'll be, we'll be even more resource heavy and we'll be investing more into the that's show. That's right. So. We're going to get better microphones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to finally touch about um, carbon capture. We promise carbon capture is coming. We're going to capture that carbon. We're going to talk about it. It'll be great. That's right. Um, yeah. And so um, last thing, follow us on social media. We're at Gen Renew Pod on Twitter. Um, follow us on LinkedIn, I guess. <laughs> um, on Instagram, I'm at Kelly M. Jang. Steve is at climate underscore Steve, which is a much easier thing to remember. Um, and yeah, reach out to us, um, however you'd like, tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, feel free to leave a rating and review, share the episodes with your friends and family. And while we're off, it's a good time for you to catch up on all the back episodes that you didn't get a chance to listen to. So, and thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you. We won't see you and you won't see us either, but you'll hear us. Um, whenever you want to hear us because you can play the podcast episodes at any time, but you will hear the fresh content at some point in the future, not next week. Bye.